as we continue going through the Gospel of John, we're going to come into a, a section today where Jesus gets angry with the brokenness, the injustice of the world, and particularly the religious institution. When, when things like this happen, when you know there's a hate crime down the street four miles from us, and, and there was a, a shooting at a, at a synagogue in Israel this last week, and when things like what's happening in Memphis happens, oftentimes religious leaders and institutions will stand up and, and say too much, or not say enough. Uh, it, it's hard to get it right. Uh, but what we're going to see in Jesus this morning is that he really deeply cares about people and that the religious institution doesn't get in the way of people seeing the grace and goodness of God. As I've been reflecting on this text this week, a song that, I, that I've loved for years uh, by, ironically, a band named Memphis Mayfire titled Pharisee has hit me this week as I've been listening to it. They, they say this, Speaking of the non-believing world, they say, and this is a hardcore band, so if you need a little energy and adrenaline in your life, go and listen to the song, Memphis Mayfire Pharisee. It's amazing. Uh, my reading of their lyrics won't do it justice. But they say, speaking to the non-believing world, they say, they'll never see the light if you preach, if all you preach is hate from a mountaintop that you could not climb. And I think about that as a pastor. I get up to preach. Am I preaching from a mountaintop that I can't climb? No, I want to stay in the valley with you and say, the mountain is where Jesus is. Let's ascend the hill together. They say, they'll never see the light if all you preach is hate from a mountaintop that you could not climb. The next time you feel the right to preach about commandments that you do not keep, realize it was grace that saved you. Do us all a favor and keep your self-righteous mouth shut. I love that. And then they say, grace, 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 four times in this guttural scream. It's amazing. And then they say, we're all at the mercy of grace. And so as we come to the word of God this morning, as I preach the word of God to you this morning, I want you to know that I am not preaching the text as though I have ascended the mountain. I'm at the mountaintop and I'm calling you all to come up with me. No, I'm in the valley with you looking at the ascended mountain by Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death, and we are all products of his grace. It was grace that saved us, and together we want to hand in hand, arm in arm, run towards him who brings healing to the broken. Amen? So I'm going to invite you to stand this morning as I read our text for today. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. In this passage, we're going to see the third time that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John. And he has some righteous anger, some righteous indignation that we're going to observe. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would expose to us what's in us this morning. You know what's in mankind. Expose that to ourselves, to to our peers, so that we could bring that into the light and find life, salvation, forgiveness, flourishing in you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this promise that destroy the physical temple and you will raise it up in three days, the bodily temple of Jesus the Christ. I thank you for making a new way where religion and institution and leaders could not make a way. May we see you, Jesus, this morning, the way, the truth, and the life. And we, may we grow. In your name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Many of you have been hurt by religious institutions and corrupt church leaders. Some, some of you haven't really processed that. Some of you just, you, you, you're, you're like the faithful type and you love the institution and so you kind of suppress your hurt and wounding and you just keep going on and others are like on the verge of leaving altogether, right? There's, there's just droves of young people in particular that are leaving the churches, but that's happened throughout the years, right? Many of you older people, you have peers who have left a long time ago because they got sick of the religious institution and the fighting and the corruption, the, the pride, the ego, the corruption, the oppression, the abuse, mismanagement of money, misaligned priorities, the, the using of the religious institution for political conquest, using Jesus to accomplish our politics. So many people are just sick of it. And church history is littered with leaders. Not, it's not just now. So those of you who are like engaging kind of this heightened anger at the religious institution in the church right now, this is not a unique time in history. This has been true of all church history, full of people that Jesus himself would call whitewashed tombs, full of people that Jesus himself would walk into the temple and overthrow their tables and kick them out and say, you are corrupt. You have turned this place into a place of trade and commerce and profit, not prayer, not caring for people. And so this morning, as we walk through this text, we're going to see some things that Jesus gets angry about, and we're going to talk about whether or not you and I have the right to get angry in the same way that Jesus did, and and what that looks like, and we're going to engage some of that. But here's four main things that we're going to look at as we kind of walk through this text for those of you organized type who like an outline. Here it is. We're going to see the significance of this scene, we're going to talk about the significance of what's going on here in the first century in Jerusalem, the purpose of Jesus' angry actions, like what what gives him the right to walk into the temple and overturn the tables and, and, and show, a, show a, what many of us would consider unacceptable action? And then what's the meaning of his cryptic words here? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And then the hope that we find in Jesus' lack of faith, which admittedly is a weird phrase. I'll explain it as we go. Starting with the significance of this scene, the significance of this scene. So if you look at verse 13 and 14, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
In the temple, he found those, so let's stop right there. So the Passover is this annual celebration when the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people, would remember, if you know your Bibles, you, you know what the Passover is. Some of you are newer to the Bible and you may not know what the Passover is. It's when they remember back when the Israelites were held captive in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt and God was delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. He was going to send them to the promised land. They spent 40 years in the wilderness ahead of time because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience. God had to discipline them. But in the process of them getting out of Egypt, God did plagues. There was a series of plagues upon Pharaoh, and one of the plagues was the the killing of every firstborn son. And God had told the Israelites that if they were to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over their house, Passover. And so they did that, and their firstborns lived, and then Pharaoh was so angered that he kicked them out of Egypt, and, and so they're, they're now set free from slavery, and they go off into the wilderness. And so this is the annual celebration, the annual memory of that. And it's happening here in Jerusalem. Like, set, set the stage for us. Like, every 4th of July, we have a weird annual celebration where we blow things up and eat too much food, right? And we celebrate freedom. Freedom from what? From British rule? Nothing compared to what the Israelites were celebrating. But this is, this is similar. So you can try to like picture yourself, Minnesota, we're kind of tame with 4th of July. If you go to some other states and some other areas, I, I, I don't want to give any credit to Nebraska because, well, it's Nebraska. But my wife is from Nebraska. She would tell you she's from Omaha uh, because she doesn't want to claim Nebraska as a whole, but the city, Omaha. And uh, when, I was, when I was younger, we would go down to her house and her family often for 4th of July, and they load the streets with fireworks. Like, it's not like here where you go to a city park and there's main fireworks. It's like everybody just goes out in their front yard and loads the street with fireworks. It's amazing. It's really fun. And it's this annual celebration where we're supposed to be celebrating our freedom from British rule, okay? That's what is happening here. Not... Not with bratwursts and hamburgers and fireworks, but ancient old tradition where the Israelites are celebrating their freedom from the rule of the Egyptians. And they're honoring God, the one who delivered them. They're, they're celebrating the Passover supper. They're remembering the Passover lamb. And for this to happen in Jerusalem at the temple was extremely significant. It's like they're in the most important city, in the most important place, for the most important week for their religion and their freedom and their life. The city is bussing with people. People take a Mecca to come to the city for the Passover celebration. So there's people from all the different surrounding villages and cities. They would come to Jerusalem. Jews would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so the city has swelled with people. Some estimates say it has five times as many people as it normally does during Passover week. And so the city is busy, and and there's a lot of celebration. There's a a lot happening, and Jesus comes into this city, and it's a significant time for him. And, And then verse 14, it says, and in the temple. 
So God had promised throughout the Old Testament that he would build a temple, and he led them to build a temple, and there was two temple periods throughout the Old Testament. I want to look at two of them so that we understand. When, let's, let's, before the temple, there was the tabernacle. So when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, they had a tabernacle, which is a mobile temple, essentially, a tent that they would set up where the glory of God would dwell. Their God would be with them. He would be in their midst. And he had promised all along, when you get to the promised land and you build a city, you can build a temple, a permanent place for my presence and peace to rest. And so after 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites finally got into the promised land. They built the city Jerusalem. They built the temple in Jerusalem. And, and there was a, the, the first temple. Let's look at it in uh, 1 Kings chapter 6. Turn to page 284. 284 with me. I want to get a quick look at this first temple period. So they're now in Jerusalem. They've built up the city, built up the city walls. They're building the temple. David wanted to build a temple. God didn't allow David to build the temple because of his unfaithfulness, and so his son Solomon now builds the temple. Pick it up in 1 Kings chapter 6. <coughs> it says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon, reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. It's so the first construction of the temple. It was referred to as the house of the Lord. Now jump over to, uh, down to verse 11 through 13. And, and there's just a ton of instruction in these chapters about the building of the temple. If you're curious, you can read that later on. First uh, Kings 6, 11 through 13. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, concerning this house that you are building, If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And when he says this house that you're building in verse 12, it's it's the house of the Lord, the temple, the place where the glory and the presence of God would dwell. Jump to chapter 8 of 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 10 through 13. And again, all of these, the space in between is talking about the temple and giving instructions for how to build it, what materials to use, how high to make things. God gave very specific instructions for how to build this temple. First uh, Kings 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. And and we can keep going, and there's a ton of great passages just about the house of the Lord. Jump to verse 27. But God will indeed dwell, but, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and earth cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So Solomon's saying, God can't be contained to a temple. He can't be contained to a house. True, that's right. He can't. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's everywhere at all times. Yet this house was to represent his glory, and it was a place for them to meet with God. Verse 28, he says, You have, regarded, you have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house 
the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen in heaven from your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. That's the purpose of the temple. It's a place where they would meet with God, where God would forgive their sins, where they would make sacrifice for their sins. It's kind of the, the portal between heaven and earth, if you will. It's where heaven and earth collide for the Jewish people, their holy place. And so in John chapter 2, when they go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, they're going to the temple remembering this. Now this temple, this is the first temple that Solomon built. It was destroyed as uh, God's people, as the Israelites were unfaithful. And you remember in uh, earlier... Earlier in chapter 8, it said, if you obey, if you obey. In chapter 6, it says, if you obey. Well, they were disobedient, and so God disciplined them. And they were hauled off into exile in Babylon, and their temple was destroyed. Then after years in exile, they were led back to Jerusalem, the people of God, and they came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Second temple era. Flip over to Haggai. Uh, It's on page 791, the book of Haggai. 791, and this is the exiles, the Israelite exiles coming back to their holy city, Jerusalem. They're rebuilding their city wall, they're rebuilding their city, and they're rebuilding their temple after it had been destroyed. And so chapter 1, I'm not going to read that for time's sake. You can read chapter 1 and kind of see the command for them to go and Actually, I am going to read it. Who cares about time? Let's read it. And I want you to see God's word here. Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So it's in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So they're, they're back in Jerusalem. They've, they've begun to rebuild the city. They've been rebuilding their own homes, yet they're, they're not quite ready to rebuild the temple. So these people say that the time is not coming to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? What a confronting question. You're doing all your remodels. You're rebuilding all your own homes. You're investing in all your own little personal dwellings, but you've neglected the house of the Lord, the temple, the meeting place for the people of Israel with God. He says, now therefore, verse 5, consider... Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when he brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all of their labors." So God here is calling the people of Israel to rebuild the temple. 
this second temple period that they rebuild after they come back from exile. And he's saying, he's using some pretty severe discipline to get their attention to say it's important. Build my temple, build my temple, build my temple. Look at Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So that, that's God's heart for this temple that actually all of the nations of the earth, and so it's a, the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem, but, but there, was a, there was a space in the outer courts that Gentiles were allowed into, and all of the nations of the world could come here and meet with God and have sacrifice for sins offered to God. And, and in fact, all of the silver and the gold from the nations of the world would come to rebuild this temple. And as he says in verse 9, in this place I will give peace, wholeness, shalom, From this temple, the meeting place of heaven and earth, that's where we experience who God is and what God is like and God's justice and God's care and God's compassion, and then it would go out to the whole world. That's the purpose and the intent of the temple. Now, that wasn't happening, right? As we read in John chapter 2, what's happening in the temple? They're there making a profit, They're there taking advantage of people. They're there getting rich off of people. And and I'm going to jump into the the next point here is the purpose of Jesus' angry actions, right? It's that the religious leaders, the religious institution is using this temple, this place that God said this would be a place of peace for all nations, a place of the meeting between God and man where heaven and earth meet, where heaven and earth kiss, It's become a place of corruption. Flip back to John chapter 2. The scene, the city's bustling, everyone's there for the Passover. This is where some incredible spiritual fruit is supposed to take place. And instead, verse 4, in the temple, so we've seen what the temple is, what the temple was intended to be, and in this place, the place of peace, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. These these people who are coming, making their Mecca to Jerusalem for the Passover, they they had to exchange their currency, their money. Uh, Many of them, in order to use it at the temple, you had to have the right currency, and so there there was an exchange of money, a change of money, but then the money changers were taking advantage of the people, charging them more, making a profit, selling these animals which are to be used for sacrifice, at, at unjust rates, making a profit off of the people who have come to worship the Lord. That's why Jesus gets angry. Because the purpose of this house is to be a place of peace and justice for all. And a picture of God's love and grace and forgiveness. And instead, the religious leaders and the institution is using it to line their own pockets. What we see here is, is pretty simple. Jesus gets angry because the religious institution and leaders are putting profit before people in prayer. Their own personal profit and gain. They're putting the facility, the actual temple building, before people who are coming to worship God in prayer. They're, they're power hungry. They like to protect their power and gain power and they actually want 
Israel to become a powerful nation so that they could overpower Roman rule. They're putting that before people in prayer. And then their tradition, religious tradition, they had all these added on traditions outside of and on top of the Old Testament law, and they're putting that more, they're, they're placing that ahead of people in prayer. And so the, the, the reminder for us here, the purpose of Jesus' angry action is when we misalign our priorities, which many, 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 many churches have done. I, I would actually go to say that all of us are guilty of this, which I think is jump down to verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Corruption, pride, power, profit, protecting what we've built in the past from being wrecked by the future. You guys know it. You've experienced this, right? Sometimes in our well-meaning efforts, we make younger, newer generations. I'm going to just get personal for a moment here on this point. There have been hordes of younger people who have entered churches built by former generations who haven't felt welcomed because of those former generations met those younger people with rules and religion and tradition. One of the things that I love about this church is that when we merged a younger church and an older church, there was some difference in tradition. And, and there were some former generations who had built this church. Now, a church is not a temple. We're going to talk about that at the end. And so there's some respect that had to be paid to the former generations who had gone before us and, and to the building. But there's comments that can be made which make people who are further from God or who are interested in God or, or who need to be discipled into the faith, there's comments that can be made which push those people out. Like, you can't wear a hat in church. Really? When? Where? Or, or you can't rest your butt on the back of the pew. Really? When? Where? You can't bring coffee into the sanctuary. Really? Says who? This, this, this is some of what we had to go through. And I love this church because the older generation was so humble and willing to look at their traditions, look at what had been done in the past and say, maybe we've created an unnecessary barrier for the younger generations by saying coffee's not allowed in the sanctuary. So praise God, now you can drink your coffee while you listen to me ramble on. Amen? Because that's a way that tradition and facility can get in the way of people meeting Jesus and being a part of the worship of God. When, when we're worried about the carpet more than we are the soul of the human being walking through the door. Or when church leaders, when they obsess over the budget and they play favorites with people who give more money and they spend more time with people who give more money and, 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 and what they do is they get in rooms and they, they think about the budget. They're like, well, we got to make sure that we... That we end the year in the black, and so we got to make sure that we don't say this because it's going to offend people. we got to make sure that we don't do that because it's going to offend people. That's what gets Jesus angry because it creates a barrier between people who desperately need to see the grace and the mercy and the love of God. Or when pastors use their stage, use their platform to increase their profit, it gets Jesus angry and it ought to anger us as well. Now, I would pause right there and just say we need to be careful because Jesus also says, take the log out of your own eye before you address the speck in your brother's eye. And in this passage near the end where he says, 
It, it says that Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So we all have areas that we've been hurt, things that we, that, that there's some righteous anger, some righteous indignation about the religious institution, religious leaders, and corrupt religion. And we ought to get angry like Jesus. But keep in mind, we're not Jesus. We don't see the whole picture. We don't know the motivations. We are likely just as guilty of judgment in our judgment of others as they are in mistreatment. And so we should approach this humbly, looking for justice in the church, looking for the church of Jesus Christ to to, to put people in prayer over profit, facility, power, tradition, add in whatever you want on that list, right? The church exists as a place, place of intimacy with God, prayer with God, intimacy with God, and to care for people who need to be cared for. That's why the church exists, both the building but also the communities. And so when other things get in the way of that, that's when Jesus gets angry and you and I got to, ought to get angry as well. But again, hold this intention, keeping in mind that all of us have these mixed motives, that we have logs in our own eye, and, and, and that our hearts are deceitful above all, as it says in the book of Jeremiah. Jesus knows our hearts and, and he doesn't trust you. Jesus doesn't trust you. I'll come back to that point at the end. Let me stick with this one for another minute. And I, I just want to summarize this, that Jesus tends to confront and contradict the religious while showing compassion to the irreligious. So if you've been around the church for a long time and, and you've kind of fallen in love with religious duty and religious ritual and religious rites, be careful. If your propensity is to try and get non-believers or new believers to conform to a certain way of doing church or a certain methodology or a certain way to operate in a building, be careful. What we see throughout the Gospels is that Jesus confronts and contradicts the religiously-minded people while showing compassion on the irreligious. And some of you might not believe me, so I want to show it to you in the Scriptures. Let's look at Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. I'm going to just do a few select verses out of Matthew chapter 23. It's on page 828 in the Pew Bible. Verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. See, they, they, actually, they were... They were interpreting the Old Testament law and teaching the Old Testament law. So he's saying, don't, don't disregard what they're teaching because they're looking at my law and teaching it. But what they're teaching, what they're preaching, and what they're practicing are different. There's hypocrisy. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with any finger. Jump down. You can read this whole chapter on your own later on today. Jump down to verse 13. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And that's what's happening in the temple here in John chapter 2. There's all these barriers being built up by religion and tradition and profit and pride and ego. People can't get in to access the presence and the glory of the Lord because religious leaders and the institution is getting in the way. And Jesus says, woe to you. 
Woe to you. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by an oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? He's saying, what's more important, the, the building or what the building represents? Jump to verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. So he's, he, he's saying you should still tithe, you should still give, you should still do some of these good practices, these traditions. These you should have done without neglecting the others. Don't neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness in your religiosity. Verse 24, he says, You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the outside, the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see this, this, this anger, these condemning words of Jesus calling us out, exposing our deeds, exposing our religiosity, exposing all the barriers that if we're not careful, we can build between the world that desperately needs hope and trying to get them to conform to our rules, our traditions, our ways, our buildings, our patterns, our morals. Morals, I think, is a big one for us today. We like to hold up a moral standard and then rather than letting people meet Jesus and him working out through the Holy Spirit over a long period of time what a Christian ethic is, we like to lead with our morals and our Christian ethic. And and that's not at all what Jesus wants us to do. It's what's causing anger in him. Look at uh, verse 37 through the first two verses of chapter 24. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Even here we see Jesus' heart, his anger, he has a heart. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, hypocrites, hypocrites, if only. My heart is to gather you. My heart is for repentance. My heart is for return. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And here he is predicting that the second temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. But remember, he told us in John, destroy this temple and, and I will rebuild it in three days, which we'll get to in just a minute. We will come to that point. Here, I just want you to see Jesus' righteous anger, his righteous indignation with the religious leaders. 
But I don't want to leave it there. I want to finish up this quote. So he tends to confront and contradict the religious while showing compassion to the irreligious. Flip to Matthew chapter 9 to see the flip side of this coin. And keep in mind, Jesus is, in Jesus' anger and zeal, he also said, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, if only you had come to me. But then look at how he deals with the irreligious. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, disease and affliction was more rampant among the irreligious because the religious leaders, the religious institution, they had access to you know, in our own terms, to good health care, to good economics. They had access, they had privileges. Here, the poor people out in the villages didn't have as much access, so disease and affliction was more rampant. And he's among them. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see how he confronts and contradicts the religious, but then has compassion, this like inward brokenheartedness for the crowds, for the lost, for the hurting, for the broken, for those that the religious establishment has ostracized and not made the presence of God accessible for. Let's keep moving on. A couple more points. We'll wrap this up. The meaning of Jesus' cryptic words. So get back to John chapter 2. So that's Jesus' anger. Pick it up. Uh, let's just close out the end of his ang- anger part here. He says in verse 16, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Again, remember, they're putting profit before prayer, profit before people. Get these things out of here. And Let me just pause real quick and say, this is not the equivalent of doing like a youth bake sale to raise money for a fundraiser. This is not the same as having a coffee. We we give you free coffee here at Park Community Church, praise the Lord, because you're generous and we can give it to you for free. Some churches will charge you for the coffee and some people take this verse out of context and they're like, that church is a whitewash too. That's not the same. It's not the same. It's probably the church just trying to cover the cost of the coffee. Um, We give you free bagels here because Panera gives us free bagels. Thank you, Panera. Don't take this verse out of context and think that any church that has a book store or a coffee bar is unfaithful. They might be, they might not be. Check your own heart, find the log in your own eye before you take the speck out of their eye, okay? You're going to hear this verse taken out of context to throw other churches under the bus, and who knows if it's helpful or not. So Jesus says, get these things out of the temple. You're, you're, you're making a profit off of people. There's injustice happening here. Verse 17, the disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, those of you who don't like thinking about Jesus being angry, you could just say the reason for Jesus' zealous action, but also that Jesus got angry. Zeal will lead to anger, but a righteous anger, a holy anger, not a, a raging anger where you're flying off the handle, but a purposeful anger. All right, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what signs do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, Jesus' cryptic words here about the temple 
what he's doing is he's showing us that Jesus is what the temple represented, God with man, the place where heaven and earth meet, where the glory and the presence of God can be seen, where the veil has been removed, where all are welcome. Jesus has become what the temple offered, sacrifice for sins. The temple was the place of sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, and Jesus has become that. He steps into that place. He becomes the sacrifice for our sin. And then Jesus replaces what the temple made of stone and wood. He replaces the temple made of stone and wood with a temple made of flesh and blood. Jesus tells us that he is the temple. Destroy this temple. And he's, in, he's talking about the physical temple, which happens in AD 70, but also his temple which was hung on a cross and destroyed and dead. And then what did he do on the third day? He raised from the dead. He's saying, I am the temple. I am everything that your physical temple in Jerusalem represented. God with man, sacrifice for sins. And now, Jesus' followers, what we learn throughout the New Testament is that we now become the temple of the living God. We are the place where God's glory dwells. God's glory does not dwell in a church building. It dwells in the people who enter the church building. That's why it matters so much to Jesus how we treat people, that we look people in the eye, that we meet people with grace, that, that, that we meet people where they're at. We don't expect them to be where we want them to be because the glory of the living God is within us. People, I am a temple of God. You are a temple of God. You are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. You are the, all of you, if I can make eye contact with all of you, probably feel weird. You are the temple of the living God. That's why it matters. That's why Jesus gets angry when religious institution, when religious tradition, when religious leaders get in the way and try to get people to conform to their systems rather than understanding that the people are the temple of the living God and we start there. And so, this is the meaning of Jesus' cryptic words. The New Testament will go on to teach us that. And now the last point, the hope we have in Jesus' lack of faith. Verse 23 through 25. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So we've talked as we go through this that beholding what Jesus is doing, who he is, what he's doing, will result in faith, belief, pistis, trust, faith. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus doesn't trust the heart of mankind because he knows the heart of mankind. Jesus doesn't trust you. Jesus doesn't trust me. He knows that we're prone to wander. He knows that we're prone to put religious rules or profit or whatever it is for you in front of people. He knows. And so the good news lies in this, that you and I aren't saved by becoming trustworthy. We're not saved by being so faithful that Jesus can trust us. We're saved by Jesus' trustworthiness, by Jesus' faithfulness. Saving faith rests upon who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. 
we're saved through trust in Jesus, not faith in our own faith. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we're like, oh, I did it again. I wonder if God's going to actually accept me and forgive me. And, and in our own unfaithfulness, our own tr- lack of trustworthiness, our own failings, we begin to question whether we are lovable and whether we are saved or forgiven. Shift what you're trusting in. Your trust isn't in your religiosity. Your trust is in Jesus, the one who removed all barriers and the one who became the sacrifice for the sin, for the sin of the world and for your sin individually. And so we come to the table every week at Park Community Church trusting who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we want to come to the table this morning asking him to cleanse us and, and, and repenting of our religiosity. Maybe for you it's not religiosity. Maybe it's something else. We, just like this text says, we are prone to wander. Jesus doesn't have to trust our hearts, nor does he, because he knows the heart of mankind. And he stepped into that place. He accomplished what we are incapable of accomplishing. He lived the life that we are incapable of living. He died the sinner's death and overcame sin and death in the grave and gave us a new life. So this morning, I invite you to just spend some time reflecting. What, where have you built barriers between God and man? Maybe for yourself. Maybe other people has, have built barriers for you and maybe you need to forgive them for the barriers that they've built and the anger that you have towards them, and the bitterness that you have towards them. It's right to be angry about barriers being built, but then also remember that those people are created in the image of God, and if they're Christians, they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, let me pray, and then we'll take communion. Lord Jesus, I, I just repent myself. I know that I've built barriers. I know that I've gotten in the way of people seeing Jesus, of people entering the presence and the glory and the goodness of Jesus. Lord, I've been hurt by others who have done that as well. There's many people in this room who have been hurt by others doing that and who have also done that. And Lord, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We thank you for your grace, grace, grace. We are all at the mercy of your grace. I pray that you would clean the temple of our hearts, that you would overturn our money tables, that you would kick out our selfish agendas and endeavors, and that we would see you more clearly. I pray these things for your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel. Amen.